Thank you for listening to the Sharon Church Podcast. If you'd like to know more about the church, please visit us at SharonChurch.com. Now we hope you learn from and enjoy today's message. Continue our worship through the study of God's words. So if you grab your Bibles or devices, turn to Exodus chapter 17. We'll be in Exodus 17 this morning. And because I love you, we're just doing seven verses this morning. But that means next week we've got to finish chapter 17 and do all of chapter 18. So read ahead because we're going to go quick through that one. But we've just got seven verses this morning. The plan was to do the whole chapter, but I think there's just too much here for us to um, get past. And I think the end of 17 and 18... Uh, kind of meld together for us. So we're going to be in Exodus 17 this morning. Uh, what I want to do is I just want to read these seven verses, give us some context around it, and then I want to walk through it and teach. But this morning, I'm going to have a lot of other scripture to get to at the end. That scripture is up here on the screen. I just want you to see I'm not making it up, that this is from the Word of God. We've, we've studied this, poured into this, prayed that the Spirit would open our, heart, our hearts and minds and eyes to see it. And so there's some more scripture we'll get to this morning. So if you, if you want to go and look ahead and mark those spots in your Bible, feel free to do that. Uh, no shame in using the table of contents as well. Uh, feel free to do that as well to find um, where we're going this morning. But we're going to do these seven verses of Exodus chapter 17. Let me give us some context. It's the people of God called the Hebrews or the Israelites here. Uh, they've been set free from captivity. They've been slaves in Egypt for about 430 years, working under the king of Egypt that we know as Pharaoh, uh, building for him storehouses and cities, making bricks. Uh, again, they've done this for generations. Before this, they were just a small family um, called by God through uh, Abraham. And he said, through Abraham, I'm going to give you an offspring. And through this offspring, I'm going to save the world. Um, later down the line, then we meet uh, Abraham has a son, named Isaac. Isaac has a son named Jacob, and Jacob has 12 sons. One of Jacob's sons' name was Joseph. Jacob loved him so much, he gave him a technicolor dream coat, and Joseph uh, was loved by his father, hated by his brothers, left for dead. Uh, Long story short, Joseph ends up being bought in the slave trade and then taken to Egypt. There's a famine in the land, both in Egypt and in Israel. Joseph uh, had a dream, prepared ahead, Joseph's 11 brothers come to Joseph in Egypt asking for help with the famine. They don't recognize that it's him. They come back again. He tells them who he is. And then he makes this statement in Genesis 50 uh, that what you intended for evil, my God, God, our father intended for good for the saving of many. At that point, Israel is just this family, this small family, Joseph and his brothers, 12 of them who would later lead 12 tribes of Israel. They make their way into Egypt to eat there and then they get stuck there for 430 years as slaves. God sets them free by a man named Moses. Uh, he sets them free and they've wandered into the wilderness. God has done miraculous things to set them free. He's taken them through a sea, a sea of reeds. We call it the Red Sea. He parted the waters. They walked through there. Now they're in the wilderness on their way to what God has called the promised land or the land of Canaan. So they're on their way there. Now the Israelites are like your kids and my kids. They expect the minute they pull out of the driveway, they're going to be there. Uh, but they're not there. This is a long journey. It doesn't have to be quite as long, but God's taking them the long way. And so this is a bit of their journey. They've been gone at this point, maybe a month and a half, maybe two months or so. And they've traveled, we're going to see this in stages. They go from like one resting place to the next. It's about two million Israelites traveling in the wilderness. And they've been through a lot. Uh, been through the Red Sea. They ran out of water. 
and for three days had no water, which is enough to kill somebody. And so they are begging for water. God gives them water through a miracle and they find um, a body of water that is bitter. It's not good for the body. And God provides a tree that when you throw the tree into the water, it makes the water sweet. And so they drink the water. Uh, Not too much longer after that, they run out of food. They complain. God hears their grumbling and provides food for them. Bread from heaven, we looked at that last week. And then this morning, we're gonna look at the third of this triad. And this is again gonna involve water here in Exodus chapter 17. So let's read verses one through seven and then we'll study together. Exodus chapter 17, verse one. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin. Again, that word sin is not sin like you and I think of sin, like transgression against God. This is a shorthand for an area. And they traveled by stages according to the commandment of the Lord. And they camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? And so Moses cried out to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, here's what you do. Pass on before the people taking with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb and you shall strike the rock and water shall come out of it and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? That word uh, Massa, there means quarreling, and the word Meribah means testing. That's, that's why he named it this place. So um, I don't know if you experienced this during the COVID quarantine. I don't know which season you were in of that, uh, but in one of those, um, did you pick up baking? Anybody start baking in your home? Just this lost art, four of us. Great. <laughs> this analogy is going to go really well for us. Uh, but may, I think a lot of people started baking. At least that's what I heard on the news and social media. But I, I guess there's four of us. Apparently, social media isn't real life. Who knew? And so um, in our home here lately, though, um, Meredith has started making banana bread. Anybody like banana bread? I got as a kid, you're like, bread out of bananas? No, I don't. Why? No, I don't want that. Do you put nuts in your banana bread? How many of you put nuts in your banana bread? (laughs) You gross people. How many of you do not? You don't? Yeah, yeah. We can hang out together. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I, just, I, I'm a, I don't like texture. Like I'm a, it, texture's weird to me. Like if it's soft and then crunchy, I, it's just weird, man. I, I can't handle it. Uh, my mom for like holidays makes this, we just call it green gunk. I don't know what you call it. It's green jello with fruit in it and cottage cheese or something like that. I don't know. I don't eat it because it looks like something my dog ate and then threw up and then ate again. And I don't, it feels weird in my mouth. That's not in my notes. I'm sorry for going this far with it. So she makes banana bread. And uh, the, we love it. Like the whole family loves it. And what's great about it is that instead of nuts, we put dark chocolate chips in it instead or chunks of dark chocolate, which is because we're healthy. So we use dark chocolate. <laughs> it's, be, it's better for your heart. It just, it is. Uh, and so we do that. And then we sprinkle sugar on the top because that's, it's pure cane sugar, I'm sure. And so that's healthy. Anyway, um, it got to the point where um, we, we went and bought one of those like display cases you put on your counter. Anybody have one of these? It's like a dome glass and a wood base. 
It looks super fancy uh, on our counter. And we, we got it because we needed some place to put the banana bread and, and because it just looks so cool. And so we got one. But what happened is um, it created an expectation for me that there would always be banana bread in the glass case, always. <laughs> and if there wasn't, I just wondered, does she love me? Like, how do, what's happened? Are we okay? What's, what's happened here? Um, and that's kind of, let, right? It, it creates the expectation that when I, when I wake up in the morning and I smell the coffee that we programmed the night before, and then I, I'm gonna walk out and get a cup of coffee and eat some of this delicious banana bread. Now, that's for me. Now, for our daughter, Landry, uh, it got worse for her. Um, she's the hangry one, if you remember. And so she'll wake up in the morning and um, loves her some banana bread, but she's very picky about her slice of banana bread. And so you put the banana bread on the counter or the bar and she'll, she'll look at it and then she, literally, she will spin it around checking for chocolate chips. I've got to know, am I going to get a chocolate chip with every bite I take? That's what she needs to know. Because if it's not, I don't want it. Get this out of here. Get this garbage out of my face and give me something that's worth me eating, please. Right? So this is, this is her. But it creates this weird, uh, again, expectation thing for us. Now, what's happened though, uh, for me, is that I've begun to almost feel entitled to banana bread in my house. Anybody else? You understand? Like, it was great at first. I'm so thankful that Meredith made it and I can't believe how good it is and she's such a good baker and, and I love it. And now I'm like, where's my banana bread? I don't, where, where, where is it? So I want to talk this morning uh, about expectation and entitlement. It's weird. I don't know if you have the same issue in your house, but the people that live in our house, um, they expect to eat every day. Do you have people like that? It's just weird. Like t- again today, you just ate yesterday. Why again? But that's expectation. The expectation is um, the expectation of a what, right? Now, entitlement has more to do with the how. It's not just that they want to eat, but it's how they want us to make what they want to eat. Does that make sense? That's entitlement. Now, the truth is our kids have every right to expect to eat in our home. Your children should expect to be fed in your house. They should. Because what that points to is the fact that you've provided for them. They have built a track record of, no, 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 mama and dad, they provide for me. I can eat here. That's expectation. The entitlement is, I don't like this. Make me something else. That's entitlement. So here's some, a distinguishing characteristic for us. Expectation leads to anticipation. Expectation, I think, is healthy and it's fine, particularly in our walk with the Lord. I think we should expect things of the Lord. I know that sounds so heretical for me to say out loud but I think we can because it's built on his character. God is faithful. And I think it actually endears him to us when we expect the the goodness of him. That's okay. He's a good God who provides good things. We anticipate the goodness of God. That is a good thing for us. And entitlement leads to disappointment. You can expect things of God and he will provide, and it's always a, it feels gracious. The entitlement happens when the things that God provides aren't necessarily the things that we want him to provide or how we want them to be provided. That is entitlement. I'm gonna read back through this passage again. You're gonna see pretty quickly that the Israelites have moved well past expectation and into entitlement. You're gonna see it pretty quickly. So I wanna address a couple of things, and that's the first one. Let's look at verse one. All the congregations, the two million people of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages. So again, they're traveling chunks 
of real estate at a time. Chunks at a time. And again, they don't have GPS. They don't have Siri telling them where they're going. They're just following a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. That's the presence of God. He's leading them. And they're doing this according to the commandment of the Lord. This is important for us. By the commandment of the Lord, God is leading them to these places. He didn't make a mistake. He didn't make a wrong turn. He's not following someone who doesn't know where they're going. This is God leading them. And they camp at Rephidim. Now, Rephidim in Hebrew means rest. It means a resting place. But the root of the word Rephidim means to spread out to rest. So think about um, a hammock. Not like an Eno fancy nylon hammock. I'm talking about a hammock made of rope. You know what I mean? Like that kind of, like the ones that you grew up on. And so a hammock, the scariest thing about a hammock is when it's not a hammock yet. You know, like when it's just hanging there. Have you ever tried, and you begin to like, I'm, I'm going to sit on this and then I'm, then I'm going to move my legs into the hammock. Do you know what that moment I'm talking about? You're like, I hope this thing holds me. And then also, I hope I don't look like a fool trying to get out of this thing. Now at that moment, um, it's not as great, but when it spreads out, that's when it supports you. Does that make sense? This is what Rephidim is. Rephidim is rest based on that. So I want you to, when you hear Rephidim, think about a hammock. He brought them to the place of hammocks where it's spread and it's supporting them. They're resting. But then there's this word that follows Rephidim and it's the word but. And so here's where everything switches. a hinge for us. Everything changes here in this moment. It's a place of rest, but... There was no water there for the people to drink. And here's why it's important we remember who led them there? God led them there. And here's what's even more frustrating if you're being honest in your humanity. The chapter before this, God just told them to rest. Do you remember that? Have a holy Sabbath unto the Lord. And so what God does is now he leads them to a place of rest, except there's no water here. Have you experienced that with the Lord? Where you feel like you're following him. And you feel like you can see it leading to this. Only when you arrive at your Rephidim, it doesn't feel like what you thought it was going to feel like. And so he takes them to a place of rest, but there's nothing to drink. Now, here's the difference between this one and what we just read in Exodus 15. If you're paying attention, these all sound the same. Exodus 15, where there was no water, and then they came to a place of bitter water and God made the water sweet for them. But at least there was water there. Do you remember that? At least there was water. And then in 16, there's no bread, there's no food and God miraculously provides. What's different here in 17 from 15 is that there's no water anywhere. So it's not like God could just take water that was bitter and make it sweet now. There's no water. This journey to Rephidim is probably more of a rocky terrain and they're probably walking in a bit of a canyon where there's rocks on either side and it's only rocks. There's no grass, there's no moisture, there's nothing like that. It's just rocks. And they come to this place where they're spread out to rest, but there is no water. And it's because God led them here. So verse two begins with therefore. So because there was no water, because they had followed the Lord to this place and he hasn't provided water, the people quarreled with Moses. Quarrel um, means to kind of go at each other face to face. And they said, Moses, you've done a great job leading us so far. Any chance there might be a chance you could get us some water? No, what they say is, give us water to drink. Give us the banana bread. Every morning it's here. Give us water to drink. You notice the difference between expectation and entitlement. Give us water to drink. 
And I love that it came to Moses because Moses has done some pretty cool stuff. And they're like, I, I know your tricks, buddy. Do that thing with the water again. Do that water thing for us. They quarrel with Moses saying, give us water to drink. And Moses says to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? How quickly a place of rest became a place of strife. Because they had misplaced trust. They thought it was Moses. But it was the Lord the whole time. They say, give us water to drink. And Moses says, why do you quarrel with me? And then he says, why do you test the Lord? If you're paying attention in the the water in chapter 15 and the bread in chapter 16, the same word test is used, but it's used as God testing the people of Israel. Now it shifts. Now the people of Israel are testing the Lord. They're testing him. I don't know, you're probably not like this because you're holier than I am, but there are times, believe it or not, um, that my kids test my patience. I know you're not like that, so let me explain what that means for you people. What that means is they, um, they're testing my ability oftentimes to provide or they're testing my character. So for um, every morning, kids come down and uh, because we're so healthy, we give them chocolate milk in the morning which I think is like a protein shake if I've read everything right about the marketing. And so I'm like, yeah, you're going to be strong. And so we, whatever. And so we come down and there are these moments where um, one or two of the kids are like, where's my chocolate milk? Well, you're not getting chocolate milk now. That was fun. That was a good conversation we just had, uh, but you're not going to have any. But what happens is the test is they don't trust me to provide for them because it's not right there, because it takes a little bit longer or because I was doing other things for them. It takes a bit longer. The test is I thought you said you would provide and you're not providing. I don't trust that you're going to provide. Where is it? When it says they're testing the Lord, what they're testing is, what they're saying is, so you're not who you say you are? This is the test they're pushing uh, the Lord into. Why do you test the Lord? So a few things to pay attention to. Moses is quick to remind them, your issue is not with me, it's with him. Then verse three, but the people thirsted there. Where? Rephidim, the place of rest. They thirsted for water and the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? And so Moses, notice the leader, Moses cried to the Lord. And he says, what shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. Something has shifted to where now it's, it's not as much the complaining out of like fear as much as it's complaining out of entitlement. And Moses cries out to the Lord, what am I going to do with them? They're about to kill me. So a few things here about leadership. And the first is this. If you're going to lead anyone, Uh, at a a workplace, in a club, on a team, in your home. The ones you lead and the ones that you actually care for the most and most intentionally will be the first ones to stone you. It's just the nature of leadership. The ones that you've poured your heart out to, the ones that you've sacrificed time with your family for will often be the first people to grab stones to kill you, to attack you, to make statements about you. This is just what leadership is. The second thing you're going to learn about leadership is that everybody sees the problems, but nobody comes with solutions. Have you experienced that? The Israelites see all the problems, but have yet to offer a solution. 
So in reading that, and you put yourself in, this, in the shoes of Moses, how do, how do you handle that situation? I think there are two things that we do. One is that we fight back against them, right? And we tell them, do you know what I've done for you? Do you understand that you're not in slavery in Egypt right now because of what I've done, because of, of me leading you out? And yet you want to stone me? The second thing, and if you're wired like me, is this, well, then I'm going to go find you some water. I don't want you to not like me. So let me be the hero. Let me go find some water. But notice what Moses does. He cries out to the Lord. This is leadership. People are complaining, chaos is ensuing, and Moses goes to the Lord. That's his, that's his instinct, to go to the Lord with it. And then verse five, the Lord says to Moses, the question is, what shall I do with them? And God answers the question, I want you to pass on before the people. So probably in the journey, Moses is either in the middle or towards the back. Uh, God is leading them, a pillar of fire and a pillar of smoke. Moses is not in the front. Moses is probably bringing up the rear. And so what God says is, here's what I want you to do. I want you to walk through all of them. I want them to see you. And I want you to get in the front. And on your way there, I want you to grab the elders of Israel. I want you to grab the elders of Israel. So here's a few things to discuss. Um, This word elders isn't the office that we talk about with elders of a church. Um, also translated like bishop or pastor. That's not the word. The word elder here means those advanced in age. And here's, here's what's going on in Israel and probably back in this time. It was the older, wiser ones who were the leaders. They're the ones who set the tone of that tribe or that family or that culture. They're the ones who had gained wisdom through experience. So the younger ones sat under them and they gleaned from them. I think we should get back to some more of that. But they, they gleaned from them. But what that meant was Um, the elders became more of the thermostat for the tribe or the group of people. They're they're the ones that informed how everybody should feel. In the New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, uh, Hebrews chapter 3, and some of the Old Testament, like Psalm 95 and parts of Numbers, talk about how God felt about the elders of this generation. And it's not good. The word used in Psalm 95 is that God loathed this generation. So let me just, I'm gonna, I love you. And I'm, I said it in the chapel. And so pray for me about that. But I'm gonna say this to you too. It's often those of us who are more seasoned who are the loudest at complaining. You wanna know why I think God had him take the elders? Because if you're gonna complain, you're gonna see what I'm about to do. If you're gonna run your mouth about it, I want you to come with me and see what I do. It's often those who are further along in life that are often the ones who are complaining. I think this is why he's bringing the elders. It's the longtime church member that complains the most. It's the one who's been here the longest who's going to complain about the chairs or the air conditioning or some program or some schedule. Rarely. Does a new member or a new Christian complain because they can't believe they're saved? Like a new Christian's like, what? This is amazing. Like I'm free from my sin. I'll sit in whatever temperature. I don't care. I don't care. But those of us who have been in church, we've lost the wonder of our salvation. And so now instead of becoming expectant that God's gonna do what God's gonna do, we feel entitled to God doing what God's gonna do because it's what I want him to do. And I love you enough to say, if you're going to complain, there's coming a moment where you're going to stand before the Lord. And we'll talk more about this in, in a second, but 
complaining and grumbling. I know we have, like, we rate sin. And so like complaining is like, I mean, you know, I haven't murdered anybody. I just get upset when my seat's uncomfortable. Well, you, it's sin. I, it's sin. I just, it just is. And so Moses grabs the elders, as God told him, and he brings them forward. That was fun. And then he says, take the elders and grab in your hand, take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. So Moses now um, takes some elders and he grabs that staff, that shepherd's staff. And God's used this a lot. But the way that he characterizes this staff is, hey, you remember when you used it back at the Nile? When you struck the water and the water turned to blood? What God is doing and characterizing the staff is what he's saying is, I want you to take the instrument of justice, of judgment, and grab the elders and let's go. So he takes them. And I love that he just says, go. doesn't say where, just, just go. And then verse six, and behold, pay attention, open your eyes. This is important. That's what behold means. I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb. Now, Horeb is another word for Sinai. They're in the region or peninsula of Sinai, but there's a particular area, a rock of a mountain called Horeb. And we first learned about Horeb back in Exodus chapter 3. Moses had run from um, Egypt. Mama, he killed a man. And so he ran into the wilderness. And while he's out there, he meets um, a woman and ends up marrying her. And then ends up working for his father-in-law as a shepherd on the backside of a mountain. Anybody know what the name of that mountain was? Horeb. And in Exodus chapter 3, we learned that on the backside of Horeb, at Horeb, God meets with Moses through a burning bush. So God, this is amazing. This is how God works. Grab the elders, grab the instrument of judgment, and then we're going to go back to where this all began. So he takes Moses to this rock at Horeb, and he says, I'm going to stand on a rock. Now, I'm bad about this. Like, in my mind, I picture, like, I don't know, like a river rock. Like, God's going to stand on it. This, it's probably more of like a huge, I mean, like granite stone or something. And so it's huge. But God says, I'm going to stand there on the rock. And let's just be honest. That's weird, right? Like really, God, God's going to stand on it? Does he have feet? He's a pillar of cloud. I don't know how this works. But he does. And he stands on the rock. And then he tells Moses, if, it doesn't, if it's not weird enough for you, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take that staff and I want you to hit the rock and then water shall come out of it. And for those of you playing at home, water doesn't come out of rocks. Like that's not a natural thing. But I want you to hit it and water shall come out of it and the people will drink. And then look at the growth of Moses from the first moment at Horeb to now. Moses did so. Moses didn't say, well, then who shall I tell them has told me to hit the rock? Moses didn't say, oh, I'm not very strong anymore. I'm slow of tongue, slow of speech. Moses did it. And this is the growth of Moses, the leader. That's hope for you and for me. And he did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. I mean, come on. That's, you're going to watch this happen. Now, Horeb means desert or desolate or waste. Other translations, it could mean parched. So God tells Moses, oh, you're thirsty? 
take your staff and go stand on this desolate parched rock where there is no water. And I'm going to provide water for you in the sight of the elders. Verse seven, and he, Moses, called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? This moment would be carried on throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, referenced regularly about the people of Israel. Why was it so significant? It wasn't just your average murmuring and complaining. What this was, was you said God was with us. I don't see him anywhere. Is God here or isn't he? It had, it had moved past I'm uncomfortable to, well, then God must not be who he says that he is. Which is interesting. I don't want to make light of it. But God is literally leading them through a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. They, they can literally see it. He just gave them the Passover. He just walked them through the Red Sea. Like two weeks earlier, he gave them water from a bitter stream and, and he gave them bread from heaven. It feels like a completely asinine question. Is God with us or not? Until you start to run it through the filter of your own life and you realize how quickly you can get there as well. Because sure, right now, we just sang some songs about the Lord and you believe that he's real. But you're going to get to the restaurant later for lunch and the waiter's going to get your order wrong, and you're going to be like, is God real? Is there really a God? Because I'm pretty sure I said Coke Zero. And there's no ranch? What? Is, is, what? How is there not? Right? Like the, it, it's pretty quick for us to get there. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 is not on the screen. I'm just going to read it to you because I think it points to some significance here. I'll, actually, I'll do that here in just, just a bit. There's two takeaways for us from this passage. And so first, I want to talk to the complainers. Talk to us complainers. I want, I want to talk to us. The question you have to wrestle with is, are you expectant of God or are you entitled? It's a question I think we have to wrestle with this morning. God is faithful. His character is that he provides. His character is that he will. His character is that he won't let them thirst that's, the, that's his character. He's proven it. His character is that he's for us and not against us. That's his character. We can expect it. But have you grown entitled? That's the question. Well, if you're grumbling and complaining, you are entitled. Expectant people have anticipation. Entitled people grumble and complain. So what do we do? I mean, it's simple, but first, we've got to stop grumbling and complaining. We've just got to stop. We are a grumbling, complaining people in a grumbling and complaining culture. We just have to stop. And it sounds easy, and we're like, oh, but it's so hard. But is it hard? I don't, is it? Philippians chapter 2, it's crazy how important this is throughout Scripture. Philippians chapter 2, Paul's telling the church at Philippi, do all things without grumbling or questioning. And I know the Greek language can be confusing. So that phrase, all things in the Greek, is probably better translated all things. <laughs> Does that help? Do everything. Go to work. Make a meal. 
go to the grocery store, drive on I-75 without grumbling or questioning, grumbling or complaining. How's that going for you? All things. Walk in the wilderness, walk in the valley, walk on the mountain without grumbling or complaining or questioning. <laughs> it's right there. It's just, it's just that. Don't just stop. Do it all without grumbling or complaining. And then here's what's crazy. Verse 15, that you might be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Now, without naming names, do you feel like we're in a crooked and twisted generation? And listen, you can social media post all you want and you can, you can uh, go off all you want about governments and politicians and about cultures and about um, agendas. You can do it all you want. But you want to know what makes the church of God stand out? We don't complain. The end of verse 15, among this generation, you will shine like lights in the world. How easy is it to be different from the world? We just have to stop complaining and grumbling. Listen, this is a legit thing. They're, they're dying, literally dying of thirst. Not like, not like bedtime with kids. They're, they're dying. Legit. Is, are things hard in your life and in my life? Yes. Yes. Is your marriage hard? Yes. Is a breakup hard? Yes. Is it hard to raise kids? Yes. Is your, is your job hard? Is it hard to work for that boss? Absolutely. Doesn't give us a right to complain and question. Because the moment that we stop, we actually look different from those around us. And scripture is clear about this being sin. Like I know we rate sin, but this is sin. It's not, it's not an innocent statement or an innocent Facebook push. Just let me rant for a second. No, no, no. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, I'm just going to read it to you. This is Paul speaking of this moment. He says, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and passed through the sea, were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food, drank the same spiritual drink, drink, <laughs> I'm sorry, uh, for they drank, there's, there it is, from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. That's a, another sermon, come Wednesday for that one. Verse five, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. In fact, God was so displeased with the complaining generation that he let them die off and didn't give them the promised land. They're in the wilderness for 40 years because of the complainers. Verse six, now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. You know what our complaining and grumbling is? It's evidence that we have idols, that we are worshiping idols. And often it's the idol of my comfort, the idol of myself. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and they rose up to play. Then look at this in verse Nine, we must not put Christ or the Lord to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Nor shall we grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Can we identify with the Israelites? Yes. Should we continue to? No. 
Their complaining does not give us permission. Well, I'm just like them. Okay. Well, the destroyer came for them and serpents came for them. First thing we have to do is to stop complaining. And the second thing we can do is that we can partner with God. The Bible uses the phrase, the word covenant as a partnership with God. And this, this is a thing through scripture that just blows my mind. They're asking for water. And if I'm God, there are plenty of better ways to provide water than this, aren't there? Like just the sound of your voice can provide water. You can, you can make it rain. You can provide springs up from the ground. You can just open, open the, the ground and make streams come. You can do it all. But God chooses to enlist Moses in the journey of bringing water from a rock. I don't know if you've had this experience with your sons or maybe your daughters, but our oldest has, has turned 13. And over the past year or so, I'm trying to teach him how to mow the grass. Have you had this experience with your kids? Um, and please hear me in this. It's not because I can't do a better job without him. I can do a much better job without him. You, right? Can't you? It's my, is it just my child that makes it really hard for me? And to the point where he's like, can I help? I'm like, no, buddy, I got it. Why don't you go back to your Xbox for three more hours? It'll be fine. You don't need to be outside. That's a myth. But truthfully, like I, I can do it on my own and it would save me time. It would save me thread on the weed eater. It would save me blades on the lawnmower. It would save me windows and rocks. Like it would save all of it. But the journey is that I include him in it. So God can do whatever he's going to do by himself. And yet for some strange reason, he chooses people like you and, to me, and me to partner with him in the work he does. So he invites Moses into this journey of providing water from the rock. And Moses is not qualified. Moses doesn't know what he's doing. Moses has proven himself to be unqualified. And yet God brings him in because this is how God has worked from the beginning of creation. God creates the world in Genesis 1 and 2. Everything is as it should be. Like there's no sin in the world. Nothing is broken. And God tells Adam, this is perfect. Now I want you to work this garden and keep it. Now, God could have just made the world function in such a way that it didn't need mankind to do anything. But in God's sovereign plan, he invited Adam in. Hey, I planted this garden. Here's what I need you to do. I need you to tend to it. Make sure it gets what it needs. It gets the water it needs, the sunlight it needs, the nutrients it needs. And in due time, I want you to take the seeds. I want you to make more life come from the garden. That's covenant. That's partnership with the Lord. He does it with Noah. He creates a covenant with Noah, a promise with Noah. He does it with Abraham saying, I'm going to bring the Messiah through your family line. I'm not just going to drop the Messiah from the sky. I'm going to use mankind to do it. He does it with Moses. He tells the Israelites, you are a kingdom of priests, a royal priesthood. The role of a priest is to show the world what God is like. This is how God works. He invites us in to partnership with him. It's such a paradox for me where the sovereignty of God meets the agency of man. It just, it blows me away that he would invite us into this. And Moses was invited into this back in Exodus chapter three. So let me give us a few things about our partnership with God, lest you become prideful about it. First is this, it's always initiated by God. God invites us into his work. We don't tell him where to show up. He invites us into his work. 
Secondly, it always begins with an understanding of who he is. And then third, it begins with humility. The great pastor Charles Spurgeon said, whenever God means to make a man great, he always breaks him in pieces first. The invitation to partnership with God begins with being broken. But here's what he has called us to do. Before you hear me saying things I'm not saying, I want you to hear what the Bible says about this journey. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, Paul says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. Then look at verse 18. All of this is from God. Being a new creation has been initiated by God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. He brought us back to God and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. What is the me message of reconciliation? God hasn't counted the trespasses, your trespasses against you, and therefore neither do I. What has God invited us into? That. That. The message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, this word means like deputies. You've been deputized. You've been given the authority of God. It's God making his appeal through us. It's God providing water through Moses and his staff. It's, it's God doing it through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We are to partner with God. And you know what keeps us from partnering with God when we complain about God. But he's invited us into the partnering with God. Now, Moses has a moment here where God says, I want you to come with me and then I want you to strike the rock. And Moses could have said all the things like, the rock? Did you, they asked for, you heard water, right? They didn't ask, they want water. But Moses shows his faith. So let me make a few more statements about those of us who feel the need to complain. Um, most of the time, complainers are not doers. They're talkers. Those who are active, those who are giving their lives for the good of others and the glory of God often don't have the time to complain and grumble. But it's when we grow idle that we find ourselves complaining. Moses has a moment, and because he is working alongside of the Lord, instead of complaining, he goes to him, but he displays his faith by striking the rock. James chapter 2, verse 17. So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Sure, you can talk about how you believe in the Lord, how he provides, and how he is all these things, but if you're not going to strike the rock, you don't have faith. It's just lip service. Verse 18, someone will say, hey, you have faith and I have works. Let's just partner together. You do the faith thing, I'll do the works thing. But James says, show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one? Good, you do well. But even the demons believe that and they shudder. David Roper, a pastor and author says, there are always two agents in every fruitful work. Willing workers and a faithful God. The human part is to do whatever God has asked us to do. We 
are to strike the rock. God's work is to make the water flow. So I say all that to say this. Like Moses, God has invited us into miraculous things in the world. But the problem for us is that we complain a lot and we grumble about it rather than stepping into the work that God has called us to do. And one of the primary complaints is, well, it just doesn't seem logical. I don't see any good coming from that. I don't see any good coming from him or from her. Well, the message that we've been given, the ministry we've been giving, been given is that of reconciliation, that we don't hold trespasses against one another. That's the ministry we've been given. So God has called us into a work. And in doing the work, we get to see the miraculous. But we're so busy complaining. We're so busy running our mouths because we've become entitled that we aren't looking with anticipation for God to do what God is going to do. The Israelites complained through in their entitlement about the provision of water. Moses was expectant. God, I don't know how you're going to do this, but I'm going to do whatever you ask. And if it's striking the rock that water's going to come from, I'm in. Doesn't make any sense to me, but I know you're a God who provides. I know you've proven yourself faithful, so I will do what seems insignificant and even illogical. I will do it. This is the journey of following the Lord. So then the argument is, well, then, how, but how do I know? Like, God's not walking around in a pillar of fire and pillar of smoke. How do I know when he's on top of the rock? How do I know what rock to hit? I don't want to hit the wrong rock. What if I do that and then something else happens? And, well, Priscilla Schreier says this. She says, having your spiritual radar up in constant anticipation of his presence, even in the midst of joyful chaos and the regular rhythms of your everyday living, is paramount in hearing God. Because sometimes the place and manner you find him is the least spectacular you'd expect. You think Moses expected to find God on top of a rock when he needed water? The reason you and I don't hear the Lord is because we only hear our own voice complaining. It's not because he's not speaking. It's not because he's not leading. It's because we've drowned him out by our complaints. But what if, what if we just silence the complaints? What if we silence the grumbling and murmuring? Could we hear him again? I just wonder if we could. And I would even say this. I would imagine the very thing you're grumbling and complaining about is the very place God is standing and asking you to strike. The spouse you're complaining about I just wonder if by God's sovereign providential hand, he's inviting you into a miracle in that spouse's heart. But you've been so busy running your mouth about him or about her that you haven't seen God standing there. Maybe it's a son or a daughter. Maybe it's someone you just met. Maybe it's a workplace. Maybe it's a program or a ministry. But the invitation of God is to act, 
to be part of what he is doing. If you'll bow your heads and close your eyes this morning and just process and wonder. First is this. Maybe you need to repent of your complaining and murmuring this morning. It's not a sin to be taken lightly. It begins to build up, if it isn't already in there, a pride and an entitlement that I don't deserve this. I deserve better than this. Do you? And maybe that could shift to an expectation that breeds anticipation. God, I don't know how you're going to do it, but I'm in. But I'm in. I don't know how you're going to save her or heal him. I don't know how you're going to restore this. I don't know how you're going to build my new life after that failure. I don't, I don't know. But I'm in. Just tell me where to go. And I think that in the ceasing of complaining, we'll be able to hear the voice of God again. And maybe for some of us this morning, you know exactly what God's calling you to do. But it doesn't seem logical. It doesn't make sense. Him? Her? That job? Those people? That house? Yeah. Yeah. God, primarily, God, help us to stop complaining. Convict us deeply. Remind us how wretched that sin is. That we might find joy again and we might hear your voice. And we would never question, are you among us or not? In Jesus' name, amen.